I'm Jim Frawley, and this is Bellwether. week. Today we're going to talk a little bit about mental health. Now I know everybody talks about mental health. We hear about it all the time. I feel like it's a story that's starting to kind of create its own narrative. A lot of people are talking about how we have this need to talk about mental health, but they don't actually do it. So I brought in a guest and this was a live live interview that we did on LinkedIn, Facebook, everything else uh, with David Jakes. David uh, is an executive. He's got an amazing history. He, he was at Barclays. He was at PayPal. Um, right now he's at WeDo, which is a, a very exciting company that, that's up and coming. So David, in his free time, which you know none of us really have free time, but David David does a lot of talking about mental health. He's, he's dealt with mental health issues on his own. And he has discovered that the more you talk about it, the better off you're going to be. And so he was a guest on the podcast. He was very gracious to be on here. Um, and, and we're very grateful to have him. So just a quick interview on, on why this or a quick moment on why this interview was so important and why I wanted it to stand alone as a podcast. One, mental health in, in the corporate sector is not being addressed in the way that it needs to be addressed. And, and we're talking about it in circles. We're not providing the, the proper support that we need to provide. We talk about in the interview how men and women deal with with mental health differently and, and what kind of support systems we have in place. David has great perspectives on how we're addressing mental health, especially from the male perspective and, and how we don't like to talk about things and how uncomfortable it is and how to get people to start thinking differently about mental health. It's, it's, it's very important. So that's that's the first thing to think of. Number two, I would encourage you to think about in your organization, ideally this would start from the top down. But in your organizations, how can you start that conversation and what can you learn about having those types of conversations? Everybody that I know, and I would argue everybody on the planet, has dealt with something mental health related, either for themselves or someone very close to them. The world's too small for it not to be the case. Mental health is a huge topic, right? It's depression, it's anxiety, it's 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 social anxiety, it's alcoholism, it's drug use. It's, we, we've all been affected by it quite a bit, and it's extremely serious and, and something that the sooner you address, the better off you're going to be. So uh, the nice thing about these interviews is you can listen to it. If it's helpful for you, fantastic. Nobody has to know you listen to it. Um, but just know that uh, the world is the world is open and there are plenty of people who want to listen and who want to help. So with that, I'll turn it back over to the interview. Please listen and thank you to J- David Jakes for for his 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 gracefulness and his his graciousness in, in providing his his time, which is always very limited for everybody. So I really appreciate that. So thank you. Tune in and I'll talk to everybody soon. All right. Hello, everybody. We are live. Thank you for being here. We are live on Facebook, YouTube, LinkedIn, Twitter, name them all. Bellwether Hub Live. We I love doing the live guests. I love doing guests on the podcast and I love uh, when we're able to do this this kind of live thing. And and I know a lot of people were excited about this interview. We're going to be talking quite a bit today about mental health. If you listen to my podcast that came out yesterday, 
uh, yesterday, you know, when this podcast comes out, probably like a week ago, uh, we talked about Ted Lasso, the TV show, mental health and sports, and how many people are afraid to tackle or talk about the mental health issue. And I've talked about a lot on this podcast, talking about struggles that I've dealt with, struggles in the workplace. We could talk a lot about how finding that, that valve to, to release some of the pressure, and especially men have, have a really difficult time dealing with this in, in the workplace, and, and it's a difficult topic to talk about. That being said, I was introduced to David, our guest today, fantastically, who also talks about mental health. And he's got an amazing story. And I, I, I like doing, when I pick my guests, they have to be valuable for the people who listen. And David's going to be valuable for the people who listen. We had a great conversation before. I was, uh, he was very gracious to have me as a guest on his podcast. And so I want to get into the topic of mental health today, talking about it in a, just a very frank and, and safe and comfortable way. And hopefully this could be helpful for, for anybody who's listening. So with that, David, welcome to Bellwether Hub. Thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you, Jim. It's a, a pleasure to be here. And, and for me, it's especially a privilege to be invited to talk about this subject because anybody that knows me will know that you can put a microphone in my hand and put me up on the stage and ask me to talk about something I'm comfortable on and, and I'll do it. But usually those subjects are venture capital investing, raising money for your startup company, growing your startup, the role of the CFO, asset liability management in banking. We talked about all of those things. This is the first time I've really been invited to talk about what is something very passionate for me, and that is mental health and mental well-being. So uh, this is very much a first for me, and I, it, it's a great privilege. So thanks for inviting me on. I want to, I love having you on. So let's talk about, we're going to talk about your background because you have an impressive background. Right, PayPal, Barclays, you've got some legit names, and right now you're a we do, and I want to talk about those. But when you're normally brought on, you just said it in a way that I like, you're normally brought to speak about different things, technical almost, in 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 a certain respect of you know the CFO world and and venture capitalists, and I have all the all this kind of knowledge and institutional knowledge that you have. Should mental health be almost a technical conversation, or at least when we have these business types of, let's talk about revenue and expenses, let's talk about strategic direction, should mental health be included in that? And how do we incorporate that? I think it should. I, I think that it's part of the bigger picture of work culture, work life, corporate culture, how these things are addressed in the workplace. And and yes, we talk about how to grow your revenue, how to grow your business, how to be better, how to be more competitive. These are all things every business has to do, and they have to do to survive. But I would also argue that if you don't have a workforce that is happy, engaged, feeling safe, and feeling that they're supported, you don't have that strong infrastructure. So this is as important, and it typically tends to be in my history, and I've been around for uh, quite a few decades now in the workplace, but in my history, it's like even human resources were considered to be those annoying people in the background that they just tell us what we can't do and tell us what we have to do, and we don't really like them. Human resources is a wonderful profession. I, I know and, and consider some people as very close friends who are in the HR world. 
And, and that is probably where it has typically generated the interest in, in well-being. And uh, people think of human resources as hiring, firing, benefits. But really, a big part of that is, is employee relations and making sure that employees have a safe place to be able to speak, to be able to confide in someone, to be able to talk to their bosses. Everybody should be able to express themselves. Everybody should be able to express their concerns. And in the workplace, if you are in a division and you go to your manager and you say, Jim, Joe, whoever, Betty, whoever your manager is, I'm really concerned about profitability in the, the division. We're doing something wrong. This is my suggestion for making it better. You've immediately got a great ear from your boss. Somebody is going to be very receptive and say, thank you for your thoughts. Well, unless you're talking to somebody who's an egotistic narcissist, and those people do exist in the workplace, but generally speaking, a good manager will be very receptive. I would argue that for many managers, if an employee goes to them and says, I'm concerned about morale, I'm concerned about how people are feeling, people are feeling depressed, people are feeling demotivated, people are worried, people are uncertain, how will the boss react to that? How will management react to that? And it will be generally one of three things. It will be just ignore it, don't worry about it, everything will get better. Or it will be, okay, I need to do something about this, but I don't know what to do. So I'll kind of deflect it for the moment. Or it will be, thank you for telling me about this. I'm really concerned about it. We need, I need to sit down with people and talk to them, hear their concerns, and hear their concerns about morale, mental well-being, how they're being treated, their balance of life, as openly as I would talk to them about something as, as technical as profitability or ethics or whatever it is that we would normally talk about. So, yeah, I, I think it's hugely important, Jim, and, and I, I hope it's happening more. I fear that we're only at the beginning and there's a lot of work to be done, but that's a great opportunity for so many people. Yeah, and I, I, I like how you almost treat it as infrastructure. It's organizational infrastructure. And, and when we talk about corporate training, we talk about corporate development, learning development, and giving people the resources they need to have the autonomy to make good decisions, have the you know ability to be successful in their organization, teaching them how to have these difficult conversations, especially from a management perspective, maybe not even from a management perspective, is extremely, extremely important. And I feel like that's where most learning and development focuses should should be uh, to be, I guess, spent on teaching that that level. So talk to me a little bit about so your mental health journey, you come from impactful industries, right? So you've got Barclays, where I would say psychological safety may not be, not necessarily for Barclays, but in the financial industry. Psychological safety, not necessarily known for uh, in the financial industry. Um, PayPal, now you're at WeDo. Talk to me about your background and, and we never really talked about who you are and what you do. So we can talk about all that before we get into the other stuff. Sure. So uh, there's really, I, I look at it as there's, there's, there's two things I can talk about. I can talk about my mental health journey. I can talk about my professional career. So, so let me talk about the professional career, first of all. And, and yes, my first job was with Barclays Bank in London. Um, not that I had a great passion to want to be a banker, but I needed a job out of school. It was a good employer. They paid well. 
it looked like there was opportunities. And I worked for Barclays International Division because I always wanted to experience living in another country. So I joined in London and I thought if I join an international company, hopefully there'll be an opportunity for me to see another part of the world. So um, entry-level jobs, I, I won't bore you with what they were, but I ended up specializing in currency and interest rate risk management. And that was in a fascinating time where uh, we had huge deregulation in the UK. Uh, it was the Margaret Thatcher era. We had, had uh, growth of financial hits. We had every country in Europe had its own currency. So there's a lot more work to be done, a lot more economies to understand than there are today. Fascinating, a huge development of derivative products that I was very fortunate to be able to grow up with. And uh, derivatives that were used truly to be able to reduce risk, financial risk, rather than the misuse that they are associated with and have been associated with maybe in the last 20 years or so. Right. Uh, so so grew fairly rapidly in, in that position, um, ended up doing advisory work for the bank's clients, mostly on currency and interest rate risk management in London and throughout Europe. And then uh, the bank offered me after a lot of deliberation and me asking for a posting overseas. And I was saying, look, I'm single. I can go anywhere. I can go tomorrow if you need me. They finally offered me a two-year assignment to New York. And off I went to New York. And uh, two and a half decades later, I'm still in the U.S. So two years turned into five years in New York doing the same job. Uh, right around year four, I met my wife, who's a native Californian. That led to me moving to California in 1994. And, uh, and, and after I arrived here, I first went to work for Silicon Valley Bank, which is a fabulous institution in uh, right here in Silicon Valley that uh, provides services to uh, startup companies, venture-backed startups. So that got me into the local banking venture capital startup world. And right around 1999, I'd, I'd taken that job about as far as I could take it. And I kind of got bitten by this startup bug and .com in a company's name was everything that was still relatively new. And I thought, you know, I want to start, the, I want to really experience this startup environment because I want to get my hands dirty with a lot of different things. I don't want to be pigeonholed and segmented in a particular area. So I found this tiny little startup that nobody had ever heard of called PayPal, which was in a one-room office above a hall and was one of the early employees. And, and it's unusual that a company so early and so small would hire a CFO because typically you don't need a CFO. And I come out of you know, banking. I was the treasurer at Silicon Valley Bank. And the reason they hired me or needed to have somebody like me was that it was a financial services company. And so I had the great privilege to work with some amazing people at the beginning and uh, what I knew about programming was probably that much. And the CTO, Max Levchin, who was really developing the product, really knew nothing about finance. And so we kind of educated each other and worked with each other. He was building the product with his team of engineers. And I was uh, building the interface with the banking system, credit card processing, and the whole financial safety, soundness, security piece behind that. And so, yeah, that was a, a roller coaster of a ride. Uh, depending on the day you talked to me, uh, it was either the best job in the world, the worst job in the world, or the most stressful, the most exciting, the most motivating. Uh, I did meet incredible people. 
and uh, it was a wonderful experience. So after I left there, I was actually hired by the first venture fund that was the first venture investor in PayPal, uh, which was the venture arm of Nokia. And I uh, got to work for Nokia when they truly, when they were the world leader in mobile phone technology back in the early 2000s. Uh, was there for a few years as CFO of their venture fund. And then uh, about the last decade or so, I've been doing very much my own thing, um, being the outsourced CFO of venture capital firms and startups. And about a year and a half ago, in the middle of 2020, I got involved in WeDo. And uh, I had very serendipitous, I had uh, met Indiana Gregg, who is the founder of WeDo and the creator of the product. And uh, her and I were actually working as consultants on another company. That's how we met. And uh, right around June of 2020, I got this call from Indy one day saying, David, this amazing thing is happening. You have to be a part of this. I have to have you here with me. And uh, after, uh, I think, a one-hour Zoom call, I said, okay, I'm in. And uh, to chat to you about, we do if you'd like to know the details there, but... uh, uh, this is something which I think is a really exciting thing that's going to happen. Well, I do. Um, so I do know about we do, and it is going to be cool, right? Just in talking about all that stuff. And so we'll get into we do in a minute because this, I feel like it's going to fundamentally change the service model for independent, independent workers, I guess you could say freelancers and coaches and, and yeah. everything. So the, the opportunity is really big. Yeah. Talk to me a little bit. We're going back to mental health now. So you've jumped around. Barclays, Nokia, PayPal. Now we do. Talk to me about your mental health. Was this a work-life balance thing? What were your biggest challenges? What brought you through? You know, talk to me a little bit about the struggles you had, because then I want to talk about tactically, you know, the challenges people, individuals are facing today in terms of how to talk about it and, and kind of breaking down that fourth wall almost. I'd be happy to. And I, I like telling my story. It's a painful story for me in many ways, but it's good that I tell it. And for most of my lifetime, I have struggled with mental health in some way. And for many, many years, I hid that side of me, I kind of shoved it aside. I didn't talk about it. I avoided it. My First battle with mental illness actually goes back as early as the age 11. And uh, I I dealt with what I can now identify as depression, anxiety, withdrawal. Um, Long story, but I basically ended up missing a whole year of school. Um, I I got sick, uh, like a flu sickness, um, took me down for a little while. Um, I was afraid to go back to school. I was uh, going deeper and deeper into this downward spiral spiral of depression and anxiety. The longer I was away from school, the more the fear got stronger of going back, the more I'd missed on school. And in the UK, you start high school at age 11, which is a very young age. So I was in my first year of high school. Um, I had the beginning of the year. I I got into a a, a good good school in the UK in the public system. a uh, public school in the UK has a slightly different meaning, but I mean public, open to the public, and uh, and was very happy at the initial start of that. And then this trigger happened. I ended up missing a whole year of school. I was hospitalised for uh, quite a while, and uh, under 
all sorts of observations, medicated, but in talking to my doctors in my adult years, they looked back and said, well, probably the only medication that was available at that time was really tranquilizers. So um, that's why a lot of this is a blur for me. I don't really remember it. I did then get back into school, uh, went to a school for kids with speech, um, was uh, helped tremendously by some amazing teachers and an amazing head teacher that helped me a lot and got me back into mainstream life. And I was able to then progress into normal studies, catch up, work hard, uh, catch up, get into uh, college to study economics and then into the workforce. And for most of my early adulthood, um, everything actually was looking pretty good. And I was able to kind of leave that piece of me behind. And uh, sadly to say, I was ashamed of it. There's a stigma and uh, a sti even a stigma to the, the special education school that I went to, as much as it was a wonderful institution and gave me that ability to rebuild my confidence and to get back into mainstream life, I was ashamed of it. And in fact, one of the things which I only realized relatively recently was that the move to New York was one of the best things for me because whenever I met people and they knew what part of London I came from, occasionally the question would come up, oh, I used to live in that neighborhood. Which school did you go to? Which high school did you go to? Big problem for me. I wanted to deflect it, change the subject, got very skilled at just not talking about it and being able to just avoid it. Then I arrived in New York and nobody cared which high school I went to. It, it didn't matter. I, I've been able to escape. I'd be able to start my life afresh and re-trigger re and rebalance and and be able to acknowledge that part of me to myself while still not being open about it to anybody else, to my friends and, and even to my family. And then um, I managed to stay stable. The thing which I feel very strongly has kept me stable throughout my adult life is something which Jim is very important to you and that is distance running. I became a marathon runner. Um, in my early 20s, uh, early days of the London Marathon, and I remember one year looking at it on TV, and I said, I'm going to be there on the start line the next year, and I was. And that was my first marathon. I've now run 26 marathons in my adult life, and that has really helped keep me stable. Um, it, it's that natural endorphin, dopamine, and all of the natural balance that you get. You sleep better, you tend to eat better, you have a balanced life, which is a lot just a lot healthier. And uh, the one thing I remember about the early days working in the Barclays trading room was that one of the expectations that people tended to have was going out drinking with the boys because it was very much a, a, a very macho, male-dominated environment. Um, trading room in the early days was probably 40 people. I think there was three women um, so it was very much a, a, a male-dominated environment, um, and you were considered to uh, have to conform. Um, I'm not very good at conforming because people tell me I have to conform. I, I, I really like to be in my own skin and do my own thing. And uh, I was passionate about my marathon running, but the one thing that that did for me was that people actually accepted, because I was the only person that was doing something crazy. Why would anybody want to go out and spend all their time running? But 
it was an acceptable thing of, oh, David doesn't drink with the boys because he needs to go out and train. Because he has he's an got excuse. A coming up right. It, yeah, it, it did in some ways become an excuse. Um, so, so that was uh, that was those years. Uh, I then had a major relapse into a pretty dark space in 2003. Uh, while living here in California, um, I, I can say many triggers that were possible for that. Um, having a young family, responsibilities, financial responsibilities, buying a house, job responsibilities, whatever. And, and I remember going into this spiral, everything felt wrong. Everything felt worrisome. Everything felt a great pressure on me. And I just couldn't function. I, I just, I knew I wasn't functioning. And uh, one of the telltale signs, I went out one day to buy light bulbs and I came home with light bulbs. And my wife said to me, why did you buy light bulbs? Because we need light bulbs. And she took me to the cupboard and showed me for bags of light bulbs that I previously bought. I was in that kind of state of mind where I was just going through the motions of day-to-day -day life, but nothing really was connected. And, and on one particular afternoon, I remember I was at, uh, that's when I was working for the uh, Nokia fund, which had rebranded a little at that point. And, and I left the office and I went to a local park and, and basically had an emotional breakdown in the park. And, uh, and went back to the office, kind of tried to pick up the day again. Uh, and that's when I said, help. I, I, I just need to get some help. Um, had actually started seeing a therapist, uh, got referred to a psychiatrist. And uh, in actual fact, my psychiatrist just retired a few months ago after working with him for 18 years. Uh, so it's a little bit of a feeling of loss because uh, it's nice to have that person that you trust. Mm -hmm. And... Um, I got myself onto a course of medication, talk therapy, medication, back into exercise and running and was able to get my life back on track again. But the skill that I learned from it was uh, what my psychiatrist taught me is self-monitoring. Sometimes you, you're having a bad day. We all have bad days. You feel bad. You feel that things are not going well because... There's a reason for it. Uh, somebody at work, something that upset you. Um, your kid is sick and you're worried about them. Some, something like that. It's very rational, very logical. And when something is wrong and you feel sad and you feel depressed, there's a reason for it. And you can understand it. But what I learned was that true depression and mental illness is feeling sad when everything is right. And I had another one of those uh, moments one, one Saturday morning when uh, my kids were young, playing on the kitchen floor, and uh, I cried. I literally cried. And I was ashamed because there I was, you know, in my four, early 40s, I think, and men don't cry. And that, but it felt good to let go. And that was part of that realization was that letting go and letting your emotions go like that within the confines of my own home with my family who are supportive it was a safe place that was a very low point that was a very dark point for me but i learned how to be able to navigate myself out of it and learn some skills but what i didn't do was then go to my employer and say 
I need to take some time off because I'm mentally ill. And I remember uh, we used to have, it was a venture capital firm, so we'd have a weekly partners meeting and uh, every Wednesday morning. And I remember thinking to myself, if I had a physical illness, if I'd broken my leg, if I'd been diagnosed with something life-threatening, I would have no hesitation saying to them, look, I need to tell you what's, this is what's going on with me. I need time off. I need time for treatment, need support in whatever. And I know that I would have got it. But if I'd have said at that point, I'm going through a dark space in life. I need some help. I need some support. They wouldn't have necessarily understood what to do. Now, I was not working with bad people. I was working with people who I, I know would have been supportive, but they were not skilled in knowing what to do. And that's where, for me, it's this big difference between something which is physical and noticeable versus an illness of the mind or the brain. And it's a simple imbalance of brain chemistry. And that is what can put you in a bad place. It can be treated with medication. It's an illness. Um, depression is an illness. Anxiety is an illness. Bipolar disorder is an illness. Alcoholism is an Any addiction is an illness. It can be treated. And that is the big thing which, which is so important is to teach people that these are illnesses that need treatment. People need support. They need help. They don't need stigmatizing. And the more we talk about our stories, the more it helps to take away that stigma. And that is what I want to do. And that, that is really my new mission in life. Um, invite me to go and talk about venture capital. Sure, I'll do it. But if anybody really wants me to talk about what are the things important to me, this is what I would tell you. I, um, I love that. And thank you for sharing the story. Um, let me talk about the stigma versus the ashamed stuff, right? And there's there's a lot to, to go into that um, because I want to talk about the fact that you had a safe place and you were able to build a safe place in order to do that. I want to talk about giving people the resources at work to be able to handle that and giving it legitimacy and, and validity. Does the ashamed part go away when the stigma goes away? Which Chicken or the egg, which comes first? Um, <laughs> Because it's uncomfortable, it's it's seen as a weakness, right? And to admit that is yeah. almost like you're admitting a weakness. Whatever, I mean, mental health yeah. is a massive. It's a massive topic, right? I mean, it's we've got depression, we've got anxiety, we've got drinking, drugs, we've got all kinds of different components of this. It could go in different ways. What got you? You know, you can't really turn off the feeling of shame, but what comes first, and how do you how do you calculate or balance the two between the external stigma? versus the internal focus yeah. on, on you and, and the feeling of a shame? I think the inward feeling of the shame is something you can control. And again, I had a major realization fairly recently, which is, is one of the things that triggered this whole new passion that I have. And that is, if you've done something wrong, if you've done something truly shameful, and you feel ashamed about it, that's okay. If I've caused somebody some deliberate harm, if I've been an absolute jerk, if I've been uncontrollably rude to somebody, insulted somebody, and then realized I shouldn't have done that, I'm 
that that's that that's something to be ashamed of. Mm-hmm. You can correct that. You can apologize for the way that you treat people. If they accept your apology, you take away the shame. And so that's my realization is if I've done something shameful and something that I should be ashamed of, I understand that. But I had not done anything wrong. I did not ask to be born with a tendency for mental illness. And I don't consider that my mental illness is particularly bad. I, I think compared to what I've heard other people's stories, mine has been very controllable and I've been very lucky that I've not had the depth of some of the really bad stuff that some other people have dealt with. But I still felt ashamed. But I had done nothing wrong. I've done nothing deliberately wrong. So if you tell yourself, I have done nothing to be ashamed of, this is something I didn't ask for. Give, give you an example. In on my podcast channel about a year ago, I interviewed uh, actually a friend of mine, um, a guy named Joe Hurd, who'd been diagnosed with prostate cancer at the age of 46, which is very unusual. He felt a sense of shame because it's something that people don't talk about. It's unusual for somebody so young. And he went through the same thing. I have done nothing wrong. I didn't ask for this. I didn't want this. I didn't make it happen. It happened to me. I couldn't help it. So that's the the shame factor is something that inwardly we can say to ourselves, I have not done anything wrong. I have nothing to be ashamed of. And that is a huge hurdle. If you can overcome that, then I think that it's very powerful and you can, you can do a lot. With regard to the stigma, um, stigma is very much a societal thing. Um, there is stigma to any kind of addiction, um, stigma to crime, mental illness, so many different things. And, and that is really a case of, of changing attitudes. And uh, one of the things which I often tell people is, look, I'm not a doctor. I don't have professional qualifications. I don't have letters after my name in which I can treat people for their mental illness. But what I am qualified to do is to tell my story and encourage us to do the same. And the more stories are told, the more the stigma is diminished. There's a lot of work that has to be done. But I think, first of all, get comfortable with yourself. Tell yourself, if I haven't done anything to be ashamed about, why am I feeling shame? And then tell your story to the extent you're comfortable. If you're not ready to tell your story, you don't want to be public. You want to be private about it, that's perfectly fine. It's your level of comfort. But if you do tell, what you'll find is so many people will say something like, you know, my mother went through exactly the same thing. My best friend went through the same thing. I've been through the same thing. And and they'll talk about it. If you talk about it, somebody else will talk about it. Somebody else will feel better. It may help them be more open. That's what we can do to help take away the stigma. But there's a lot to be done. A lot to be done. I do, um, you know, the logic versus emotion internally, right? We have the feelings that just kind of take over, which which kind of take away the logic of, you know, and, and it's interesting the way you describe depression of, you know, you feel that way when everything is okay. Um, but then also the stigma comes, you know, it, it goes away with understanding. And so going back to, um, and understanding comes from talking about it. So going back into the workplace, have you seen anything or have you, you know, because you've talked a lot, you've had a lot of guests on, on your podcast in terms of mental health. Have you heard anything in the workplace of um, 
people taking initiatives to start the conversation in the workplace? And and I'll I'll put a sub question to that because we've talked a lot about you know women in leadership positions and challenges that they have in in obtaining leadership positions and everything else, and and we're making progress there. More to be more needs to come and and everything. But the other thing that that the discussion that hasn't really gotten into, we're just starting to scratch that surface, is men in the in the workplace not necessarily addressing their particular mental health challenges. And as as the, the dynamics are shifting in the workplace, the stress comes in, mental health challenges get get enhanced. Have you heard anything specific about men in the workplace, but then also have you heard just as a general kind of kind of commentary? <sighs> I can't really draw on particular examples, but um, it, it is a gender thing and it shouldn't be a gender thing, but it is relatively prevalent. Um, I, I, I can't recite the statistics, but I think something like 75% um, of the people that seek help for mental illness are women. So, so men are not even, it, it should be 50-50, right? So mm -hmm. it's not the fact that more women have a tendency to be mentally ill than men. It's the fact that more women are likely to seek help when they need it. And, you know, coming back to um, the prostate cancer discussion, one of the things which I said was women have done a very good job in spreading the awareness of a disease like breast cancer. They talk about it openly. They've been very good at spreading the word, telling people the risks, telling people to go and get tested. Men have not done as good a job about some of the male physical risks and, and things that you need to get tested for. We don't talk about it. Why don't we talk about it? Uh, it's a little embarrassing and we, we wonder if people are going to judge us. It's, it's the same thing. And, uh, and I think that um, there's a lot of improvement. There's a lot of... Uh, development in this way and i think uh, i think men are more likely to open up and ask for help and identify problems today than they did in prior years and i think that uh, i i do think that there are two things going on with with men in the workplace that uh, should be changed and should change over time one is to be more in touch with our feelings and to be able to be more empathetic with people and uh, the other is to have less identity with our job because not only do men generally tend to um, to tend to not speak up in this way there's also a lot of identity with who you are based on your job I think that goes for anyone and your job does not tell people who you are um, that's just a part of you it's all about the person and um, the elementary school that my kids went to, which was a, a, a charter school, and one of their philosophies, which I loved, was educating the whole child. It's not about teaching subject matter from a textbook. It's about teaching them how to be a better person, how to be a better citizen. That's really what it should be about. It should be about being a whole person, not just what I can do for my company, how I can get the next bonus, how I can get the promotion, how I can get the next job. 100% of my identity is based on what I've done in the past, what I can deliver to my next company and be successful. But a big part of being successful is about being balanced and about being happy. And I would ask many people, 
who have positions of authority, power, seniority in their company, are you really happy? Is this what makes you happy? And uh, I think it is a necessary piece to look at all aspects of your life. Um, my, my work life, my family, my friends, my social life, my exercise, what I eat, what I do, how I spend my time, the books I like to read, how I like to entertain myself. These are all parts of you. And they're all varying degrees of importance based on what's going on. It should not be 90% of me is my job. 10% of me is all that other stuff. It should be a balance. And that's hard to do. It's not an easy thing. And fortunately, I can't give anybody a recipe for say, do this, do this, do this, and you'll be in perfect balance. You have to decide that for yourself. Right. It's purely up to the uh, the individual. And it's, it is interesting about the work identity thing. You can ask someone who's 90 years old to describe themselves and to say, I'm an engineer, but they've been retired for 30 years. And we just carry that. You know, you're no longer, I mean, I guess you're always an engineer by trade, but um, it's amazing how we use that for part of our, our identity. Going back to your space, right? When I was dealing with my things and my family, it's a phenomenal space at home and everything else. Do men need to be better friends? And, you know, I, I don't know what I'm really asking right now, but I feel like um, in terms of spreading awareness, having conversations, um, women talk about everything with their friends. Um, and I'm, I'm just going off my own experience. I don't talk about the stuff with any of my friends. Right. And, and yet I'm in the position that I am. And I talk about it all the time on shows like this, but I don't talk about it with my friends. Do we need better friends as men? Um, or at least create more or take more of an opportunity to create spaces, whether it's at home or not, to allow for that conversation. Do you have any input on that? I think it's yes. I think the answer is yes. Um, men need to be better friends to each other. And it's, it's a two-way street. It's being there to support your friends and using your friends to support you when you need it. And... Once again, it, it is a little bit of a gender thing that, that women do a good job in supporting each other. Um, if a guy's having a bad, or is seen to be having a bad day or going through a tough time in life, what is a friend likely to do? Oh, let's go out for a beer. Let's go to a baseball game. Let's go to a cricket game, depending upon where it is in the world that you live, and go and do that kind of surface stuff. But what they don't necessarily do is to say, how are you really? And um, again, this is not my thought, so I won't take credit for it. But um, on my podcast channel, I interviewed a guy from the UK. His name is David Burgess. And, and his philosophy is he will say to a friend or he will go to you and he would say to you, Jim, how are you? And you would probably say, I'm OK. And then he would say, no, how are you really? What is going on with you? And give you that opening to say, well, actually, this is going on, this is going on. And then the response to that is, how can we get through this together? Once you've made that connection and you've opened that door and you say to someone, I care about you, I believe in you, and I want to help you. And it could be something as simple as just being a good listener. Mm -hmm. um, that, you know, a little bit of a cliche, a problem shared is a problem halved or something like that. I, I think that's an English thing. 
but uh, it's true. You tell somebody about a problem, you don't necessarily need them to solve it for you. And uh, you know, one of the things which I always say is if you, if you put yourself into therapy and there's no shame in doing that, um, the job of the therapist is not to solve your problems for you, is to help you solve your problems yourself, to give you the tools to help you. And sometimes it truly is just talking, just opening up and talking. And coming back to what I said earlier on, it feels good to let go and show your vulnerable side and, and show that that's actually a point of strength is when you show somebody, look, I have this vulnerability. I need your help. That actually, I think, is very empowering. If a friend comes to you and asks for help, does that make you feel good? I bet it does. Because even though it might be a little bit intimidating, you may not know what to do. Somebody is going through a rough spell and they need help. At least be a good listener. Even if you can't make the solutions for them, you can't tell them what to do to make it better. Be a good listener. Be there for them. Help them overcome their problems themselves. That's fantastic. Um, and you actually just answered my next question which is, you know, who's responsible for starting this conversation, but I guess we're all responsible for starting it up on our own and we'll go that way. We have a few minutes left. Let's talk about what's next for you, right? Mental health, you've got, we do, um, where can people go? How can they find you and how can they get more? I'll put your, your stuff across the bottom here, but, um, talk a little bit about what you're up to now. Sure. So, as much as I do not recommend to anybody that you put your entire identity into your job or what you're doing, um, an increasing part of my identity is with WeDo. And, uh, and as you kind of mentioned earlier on, just a, a, a brief summary of what WeDo is about, um, it is going to be a new app that is going to support the world of freelancers. So this could be coaches, consultants, personal trainers, yoga instructors, violin instructor for your kid, whatever it is, anybody that's providing a service and is doing it on their own. So it really supports the world of the freelancer. It's a little bit of an intimidating world, but especially in the COVID era, there's been a huge shift of people coming out of conventional traditional employment and looking at what can I do? What, how can I take the, the technical skills that I have and build this into a business myself and, and do it to provide a service to others. So WeDo is going to be an app that will allow any freelancer to communicate with clients, make an appointment for a session, do a video session, record it, and get paid all in the one place. So instead of doing text, WhatsApp, email to make an appointment and keeping a scattered calendar, and then sending somebody to Zoom or to some other platform to do a chat and then sending them to PayPal or Venmo to get paid, you can do it all in place. So um, it, it's, it's a great concept. It's an exciting thing. Um, I think it's appealing to me because not only is it a great technology, it's something new, it's something that's exciting, that it also provides a service for people that need it. And, uh, and particularly the getting paid piece, which is a lot of my professional background is about moving money around. And uh, there it's are so the many most of these important services. part of being a freelancer, for sure, is the uh, the getting paid piece. You've got to get paid. <laughs> you get paid. This will help people get paid instantly, quickly, efficiently. And, and so that's why I believe in it. And uh, it really does support 
people being best version of themselves and, and their well-being. And so almost by coincidence, um, I decided a couple of years ago that I wanted to be an advocate for mental health and uh, wasn't really quite sure how to do it and uh, had done a few things, dabbled in a few things. And then when I connected with WeDo and became part of the founding team, one of the things which we were starting to do was to build a library of blogs and podcasts. And uh, I was actually one of the very first interviewees to be interviewed on the podcast channel. And, uh, and it was about my life at PayPal, why I left when I did. And, uh, and I left because it was right for me to leave at the time I did. And I told that whole story. And then uh, the person that interviewed me left the company and I became the host of one of the hosts um, of the podcast channel. And one of the things which I wanted to do was not only support the potential clients for we do, but also use it as a platform to be able to get these messages out there. And so it's just been a, a great space for me. Um, I'm spending more and more time doing it. Uh, for the podcasts that I do, I choose not to get paid. It's not, I'm not in it for the money. I'm not, I don't get paid per number of clicks on the YouTube channel or anything like that. I'm, I'm not right. in it for that. I'm in it to be able to spread the word and to tell people it's okay to open up. It's a talk, show your vulnerable side. It's a, it's a position of strength if you do that. So that's what, that, that's what I want to be doing for the next few years. It's a wonderful thing, and it's a good cause. It's going to help a lot of people. David, thank you so much for joining. This is um, – it takes a lot to share a good story, and it's um, – and especially your story, right? It's it's um, it's emotional and it's big, And uh, but when you do it, like you said, when you share it, you know it's going to be helpful for, for somebody else. So um, we really, really appreciate you sharing that with us today. So thank you. My pleasure. Uh, Everyone, bellwetherhub.com, come by. I've got a nice little write-up on David. Um, all his contact info, learn more about we do, learn more about his YouTube channel, his Spotify, all that good stuff is going to be on bellwetherhub.com. Thank you, as always, for joining, and I look forward to seeing everyone out there soon. Thanks. Thank you so much for listening. Now, do something for yourself. Bellwether is much more than just a podcast. Join us at bellweatherhub.com, where you can read riveting articles, view upcoming events, and connect with other interesting people. I look forward to seeing you out there soon.